with our souls. Thanks to the Lord. Today we are talking, in the passage today, about joy. And Jeannie and I were talking about that, and we were talking about who comes to mind when we think of joy. And both of us came up with the same person. Her name is Kay. When you meet Kay, she is someone who just radiates joy. She's got a smile on her face. She's delighted to see you. And there's a sense when you're around her, there's just, um, she is so anchored in the Lord with joy that it's refreshing to be with her. But let me tell you a little bit about Kay. She's in her 80s. She, for at least 25 years, that's how long I've known her, at night has to sleep on a respirator because her diaphragm is paralyzed. All during the day, she has to struggle to breathe on her own. She uses her muscles, but at night, to stay alive, she has to be on a machine. She has a degenerative disease of her bones and her skeleton that she's constantly shrinking and compressing. To walk, she has to wear braces. She's had to wear those for years simply to get around. Her immune system and respiratory system is so compromised that she has to be housebound for eight months out of the year because if she goes out in public or is around other people and picks up a cold or flu, it would probably kill her. And she's been that way for many, many, many years. Her daughter's going through terrible cancer. It's a very difficult time in her life. And yet, and yet, Kay radiates joy. Is it really possible for you and I to have that kind of joy? I mean, a, a deep joy, a deep abiding confidence that all is well with my soul. I've got to admit, I feel awfully controlled by circumstances. Joy doesn't come easily. I mean, I, I, I have a joyous life, but... When things get hard, I struggle. Just this week, I went through a particularly um, tired stage, and, and it was a difficult stage. And uh, I, Jeannie said something. I said some harsh words back to her and uh, realized I was wrong. And so I went to talk to her, and she said, do you realize you've been irritable for a long time? And I, in my normal godly response said, well, why didn't you tell me? It's your fault. If you'd told me, see, I could have been different, but you didn't tell me, so. You know, I, I get controlled by circumstances. Can you identify with that? Is it possible to have joy that isn't so controlled by what happens in our lives? Well, Jesus' answer to us is yes. Yes. For you and for me and for every one of us, there is a joy that can be abiding, a deep confidence that can see us through those difficult times, no matter what it is we face. And in fact, He longs for us to live with joy. He offers us joy. He he wants us to live with a deeper kind of joy, not just superficial happiness, but a deeper joy that will see us through the most difficult times. But it means changing our view of where joy comes from. We're like the disciples too often. 
I think the disciples, as we get into our passage, had a picture of where joy comes from. In Israel in that day, the Romans were in charge. The Israelites were under oppression. It was a difficult time. And their picture of joy was that Jesus was Messiah and He was going to raise up, set up His kingdom in Israel, throw out the Romans, bring prosperity, life, joy. And they had this picture in mind. Don't we have a picture in our minds too? You know, I could have joy, Lord, <laughs> if you would just fill the picture out. If you just take away this pain, this struggle, this financial difficulty. If you would just give me security for the future. If you would just deal with this problem with my child or my spouse or my parent. or Then I would have joy. But see, that's not where joy comes from. That kind of joy can't last because it's based, it's founded on circumstances and circumstances are constantly changing and therefore our joy constantly changes. So he's offering a totally different kind of joy, a deeper, richer, lasting joy in our passage today. So let's dig in and see what he has to say in John chapter 16, beginning in verse 16. And let's look first about our need for joy, our need for joy, verses 16 through 18. He's talking to the disciples and he says, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, What does he mean by saying, In a little while you'll see me no more, and then after a little while you'll see me, and because I go to the Father? They kept asking over and over again. They were arguing about it. They were talking about it. What does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. The disciples are confused. Jesus has said he's leaving. And they're heartbroken. They're in grief about that. And now he's saying, but in a little while you'll see me. And of course, he's talking about the resurrection. He will be gone. They will grieve for three days, but he'll arise from the tomb. But they don't get it. They don't understand. And and all they can think about is, I want my picture to be fulfilled, and yet you're leaving, and it's gone, and now you're saying you'll be back in a little while, and maybe I should hope in this. Maybe circumstances will get better. Maybe it won't, and they're struggling. Isn't that like us? You know, we're constantly looking in the uncertainty of life for some sign of hope that maybe, maybe our joy will be fulfilled, what we're putting joy in, what we're depending on. Maybe this will get better. Maybe this will improve. And yet we live in this fear of loss, trying to avoid what we're afraid will take our pain away, or, or our, excuse me, our joy away. So we burn our energy somehow trying to preserve some joy in this life. I think a lot of our compulsiveness with exercise, with finances, with all the different things we do to try to somehow somehow hold on to joy in this life, and yet it keeps slipping through our fingers, and we wonder why difficulties come, and flat tires, and cancer, and pains, and, and this life is full of difficulty, and that joy just keeps slipping through our fingers, even though we try to hold on to it. You see, finding joy in this life is like 
taking a, a slightly damp washcloth and trying to wring some joy out of that. And you might get a few drops, and, and we struggle in that, but we, we're constantly trying to get joy out of this life, but eventually it dries up because this life can't bring joy. We think it can. We keep trying, <laughs> but it can't. It can't. It won't work. So how can we have a joy that's separate from this life, separate from these circumstances in which we all face trials and difficulty? What is the route to joy, real joy? Well, it's a surprising route. It's one we probably would have never come up with, but it's one God came up with. So let's look at the surprising, surprising route to joy in verses 19 through 22. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? I tell you the truth. You will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. We're so convinced by our foolishness and by this world that joy and pain... Joy and struggle, joy and trials are incompatible. If you have trials, you don't have joy. It can't fit together. But that's not true. That is not true. In fact, what Jesus is saying is what's really true (laughs) is that they're intertwined. And in fact, they're so intertwined that you cannot have joy, biblical joy, without trials. You cannot. Walter Wangren in his book, Reliving the Passion, says this, The difference between shallow happiness and a deep, sustaining joy is sorrow. Happiness lives where sorrow is not. When sorrow arrives, happiness dies. It can't stand pain. Joy, on the other hand, rises from sorrow and therefore can withstand all grief. Joy, by the grace of God, is the transfiguration of suffering. Joy is the transfiguration of suffering. So Jesus tells the disciples, you will grieve. They're about to lose all their hope. At least he's still with them at this point, but that very night he would be arrested and be crucified the next day and be dead. The loss of all their hope. And he says, you will grieve. but your grief will be turned to joy. Now, in the meantime, the world will rejoice, he says. And I picture from Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, that scene where the white witch has killed, murdered Aslan on the stone table, and he's dead, and the white witch and her cronies are celebrating. The world will rejoice, but your grief will be turned to joy, that it's through his death that joy comes. It's through the pain and struggle that joy comes. Joy is on the other side, and the only way to it is through it. That's God's plan. 
And the way he puts it here, it isn't that joy replaces grief. You have grief and then it changes and becomes or replace, is replaced by joy. No, he says the grief gets turned into joy. It gets transformed, transfigured, and becomes joy. You can't get true joy without going through the struggle. That's his plan. So he uses the illustration of childbirth. One that we men just have to try to understand. (laughs) But all the mothers here know what he's talking about. A woman giving birth to a child has pain, real pain, physical pain, because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. And for their culture, it's even more intense than ours. At least in ours, typically because we have such good medical care, when a woman goes into labor, it's the sense of, you know, I've got to go through this pain. I may have an epidural just to ease my pain. But I've got to go through this pain, but I will have a baby at the other end. In their culture, and in many cultures in the world, there's probably at least a 50-50% chance that the woman will die, that there will be no baby, that there will be no joy. There was uncertainty. With our first, there were complications in the, in the pregnancy and the labor and delivery, and so uh, they did an emergency C-section, and so we were able to have our son. But we found out later that the complications were the leading cause of maternal death and infant death in the world. Because we had good medical care, we didn't face that. But it's sobering to think that most places in the world, I would have lost my wife and my child. And that's in the culture that Jesus is talking about. You go through pain and the uncertainty of whether I will ever experience joy on the other side. And yet when you have the baby, it's all forgotten. Women do like to tell their birth stories. (laughs) But, you know, they really do forget the pain. I mean, in other words, they may remember something about it, but somehow it's gone because they're holding this baby that's alive and there's joy and there's excitement and the pain has produced that life. It has given birth to the joy that can't be taken away, that the pain cannot destroy. You see, that's what Jesus is saying here is as we go through pain, it's producing something. It is getting us to a place where we can experience real joy. Even when there's uncertainty about what is ahead. And in fact, in Christ, it gives us certainty because he's in control. He's producing life in the midst of it. A poem by Mary Butterfield, let me just read a part of it, says this. O paradox of heaven, the load we think will crush was sent to lift us up to God. Then, soul of mine, climb up. Nothing can e'er be crushed save what is underneath the weight. How may we climb? By what ascent will we crest the critical cares of life? Within his word is found the key which opens his secret stairs. Alone with Christ, secluded there, we mount our loads and rest 
in him. That the loads we face, the pain we face, doesn't have to crush us. Howard Hendricks is fond of saying, describing a story of he's talking to a friend and uh, he said, how you doing? And the friend says, well, pretty good under the circumstances. And Howard Hendricks says, well, what are you doing under there? <laughs> like Mary Butterfield says, you know, in Christ, as we spend time secluded with him, all of a sudden we become, we get on top of our circumstances. We, we find joy even though the circumstances are still there. How does this happen to us? How do we find joy in the midst of the pain? How, how do we get there? Well, it's the same for us as it was for the disciples. He says you go through the loss, and on the other side you find joy. And they did. In John 20, verse 20, it says, When they saw Jesus risen, they were overjoyed. They were filled with joy, a kind of joy that you see carried right through the book of Acts in their lives because there was a confidence because Jesus had risen. He's alive. He is Lord and he's over circumstances. We get crushed because we, all we can see is the pain and the struggle and the circumstances themselves. But as you begin to see Jesus is Lord, he has risen, he's alive and he's in control. He's the blessed controller then all of a sudden the circumstances aren't so big. They aren't the issue because joy comes in knowing he is in control. So how does it work? We suffer, but we see Jesus at work in the midst of it. We see his hand with us. We see we're his friend as we sang about. We see that he loves us and in the midst of that we find joy. I've heard many of you say, and I've said it myself, after going through hard times, that was really hard. I wouldn't have chosen that route. But you know what? I wouldn't trade it for anything. Because we see what God does in our lives through it, and it gives us a joy as we see God work through the pain, the lost jobs, the cancer, the difficulties we face. God brings joy through the suffering. One way of looking at it is that our hearts are so bound up by our own selfishness, by our own wrong perspectives. It's like our, our souls are, are wrapped up with chains and padlocks. And we're surrounded and, and it binds us so we can't be free to rejoice. And so God allows circumstances, suffering, difficulty, the blows of trials to hammer away at us and we feel the blows and we think God's angry with us. God's hurting me. God, why can't you make life better? Why are you doing this to me? But over time, we see what he's actually doing. He's hammering at the chains. He's hammering at the locks that keep us from experiencing real life and real joy. And he's tearing those off of our souls so we can begin to be free. That's what the Lord does. And as we begin to see it from that perspective, we can have joy in the midst of the trials, in the midst of the difficulty. Steve Harrell, on staff here, one of our elders, was telling me this week a story where he'd lost his job a few years back. And it was a really hard time, and he was struggling with it. It was painful. Then he ran into a, another man he knew who had lost his job as well. 
from another firm, and they said, well, why don't we just meet together and, and talk about it and pray for each other and see what God will do. So they met together weekly for a period of time until finally God opened the door and they each found other jobs. Well, years later, that man came to Steve and said, you know what, I just want you to know, by meeting together, you saved my life. I would not have lived if you hadn't done that. You see, for Steve, he was going through a hard time, and yet if he hadn't been, he would have never had the opportunity to walk through that with someone else, have that joy, and then see God use it for good in another person's life. God does amazing things in the midst of the suffering and pain to set us free and to minister to others as well. So what's the basis for our joy? What do we count on if we can't stand on circumstances because they're just going to take us every which way and they're uncertain and unsteadied? What do we stand on to have joy no matter what comes? Jesus tells us in verses 23 through 27. In that day, he says, you will no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Your joy will be complete. Though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. He says, in that day, things will be different. What day is he talking about? The resurrection. When they see Jesus face to face, it will change everything. See, because Jesus rose from the dead, everything has changed for us. Circumstances are not in control. They are not all there is. All the world looks different when you have your eyes on the risen Christ. Because he's Lord, he's master, he's in control. It's like being in love. You fall in love and everything looks different. (laughs) You just see life differently because you're aware of this other person that fills your soul with delight and joy all the time. And when you see the risen Christ, that's what it does. It changes your perspective on everything. Jesus is alive. He's present. He's involved and working in everything we go through, everything that happens to us. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He is involved in every little circumstance that happens, every struggle you have, every blessing you have. You may feel abandoned. We all feel that way at times. But it's not true. He's involved in everything because he rose from the dead. He's alive and he's committed to you and to me. And these are astounding words he goes on to say because what he says is, and here's what will happen, you will have direct access to the Father and his resources, you'll just ask, and he'll answer it. He'll give it to you, whatever you ask. That was astounding to the disciples. It should be to us, but we're kind of used to hearing that. But it was astounding because they grew up in a culture 
where the Father, God, was in the Holy of Holies. Nobody could approach him, ever, except the high priest, one day a year. And they were so scared about that that they tied a rope to his foot in case he did something wrong and got zapped. They could at least drag his dead body out of the Holy of Holies. You see, no one could approach the unapproachable God. Certainly you wouldn't ask him directly for things. But Jesus is saying, you know what? When I rise from the dead, everything will be different. Those barriers will be gone. The curtain will be torn from top to bottom. You will have direct access to the Father, and he, you won't have to ask through me. You can ask directly because the Father himself loves you. Now, you may, may be sitting out there going, okay, he says whatever we ask, he'll give us. That's not my experience. I, I've asked a lot of things of God, and he hasn't come through for me. I'm still fighting the same cancer, the same difficulty, the same struggles. You know, Paul experienced that too. So three times he asked the Lord to take away his thorn in the flesh, and he didn't, 1 Corinthians 12, 2 Corinthians 12. So what, what is Jesus getting at here? Well, notice in every case he says, you will ask whatever you want of the Father in my name, in my name, and he'll do it. What does that mean, in his name? Does that mean we kind of tag on the end of our prayer, in Jesus' name, and God's obligated to do it? <laughs> I've tried that. It doesn't work. So. <laughs> so what does it mean? Well, what he's getting at here is it's like an ambassador for President Bush to Pakistan. If you're an ambassador, you go in President Bush's name. You represent him. You speak for him. You speak in his authority, but you only really have authority to speak according to his will, according to the president's will. We are children of the living God. And when we speak in his name, it means according to his will, as his representative. So if you pray and God hasn't answered a particular prayer of yours, there seems to me there's only a couple of choices. Either one, you haven't prayed according to his will, according to his heart. Or two, he's just saying, not yet. I will answer that, but not yet. So how can we make sure we're praying according to his will? How do we do that? What, what does that look like? Well, the most direct way, the easiest way, is to read the Scriptures and pray the promises that are given to us in Scripture. If you pray the promises of God, I will never leave you or forsake you, for example. He promises that. So when you pray, Lord, be with me in the midst of this struggle, you may feel His presence, you may not, but you can know He answers that prayer. He will never leave you. He's in the circumstance with you. He promises he will work all things together for good to those who love him. And he defines that in Romans 8, the good as Christ-likeness. That's what he'll do in anything that comes our way. He, will, he promises he will use it to make us like Christ as we submit to him. So that's a promise. You can pray, Lord, in the midst of my struggle, help me become more like you. 
Help me trust you, Lord. Help me know you more. Those are prayers that God is obligated to answer. He will answer. Absolutely, because he's shown us those are clearly according to his will. Change my heart, Lord. Make me like you. He will answer those prayers. He will answer those prayers. Charles Spurgeon, great theologian, says this, Every promise of Scripture is a letter from God, which we may plead before him with this reasonable request, Do as you promised. Our Creator will never cheat those of us of His creation who depend upon His truth. And even more, our Heavenly Father will never break His word to His own child. So you want to make sure you're praying according to His name, in His name, according to His will? Well, look to the promises of Scripture first and foremost. And get to know Him better. The more we know him, the more we walk with him, the more we understand his heart, the more we'll be able to pray according to his will. Over time, my prayers have changed. They used to be a lot more of, Lord, fix this problem. Lord, change her. (laughs) Change him. (laughs) Lord, give me financial security. Lord, do this, do that. Fix this problem. And my prayers are much more, Lord, change me in this. Lord, help me trust you in the midst of whatever you bring. Lord, glorify yourself in this. And those are prayers Jesus will always answer. He will. Maybe we won't see the answer. Maybe we won't see exactly how he's working, but he will answer, and by faith we can trust that. So what's our basis for joy? What do we stand on in the midst of a crazy world and a crazy life full of trials and difficulty that will give us a joy that can't be taken away? It's the truth that Jesus is risen and he is Lord. He reigns. He is over trials. He is over everything. He holds us in his hand. And the Father himself loves us and will give us every resource we need as we ask to handle what comes our way. So we can have joy in the midst of life. But yet we struggle. Why is that? Well, we don't keep our eyes on him, but there are some thieves that come and try to steal our joy. And this last section gives us three thieves that can try to steal our joy, verse 29 through 33. Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech, Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. So the disciples are saying, oh, we get it now, Jesus. Okay, we understand. We we know what's happening. We know you came from God and we we get it now. So now we can have joy because we understand. (laughs) Notice what Jesus does. He rebukes them. Oh, oh yeah? Now you believe? (laughs) Now you get it? I don't think so. One of the thieves that can steal our joy is this sense that, okay, okay, I can have joy in the midst of the struggle if I just understand what God's doing. And so we try to understand. We, 
Lord, what are you doing? And I've I got to see, and what, why? Why is this happening to me? And if we think if we just understood, we would have joy. But that prideful, arrogant sense, that a demand that we understand what God is doing can steal our joy. It, it takes us away from a simple trust that says, Lord, I don't understand everything you're doing. He sometimes gives us glimpses to encourage us. But to be able to say, Lord, I don't understand, but I know you are Lord and you're in control and I will trust you. That's where joy comes from. Second thief that tries to steal our joy is our own failure. Notice the next verse. But a time is coming, verse 32, and has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home. You will abandon me. And that's literally the word. You will abandon me, Jesus says, and leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. The second thief that tries to steal our joy is our own failure. We walk through life and and we think, okay, I'll trust you, Lord, and then we blow it. We abandon him. We walk our own way. We do our own thing. We turn our backs on him. And then we get overwhelmed with guilt and we think, okay, God's angry at me now and he's upset and we get overwhelmed with that and we lose our joy instead of coming to him and saying, yeah, I blew it, but Lord, you love me. As he just said, the Father himself loves you. Jesus died on the cross. Your sin is covered. It's gone. It's well with my soul. And we experience joy. So don't let your own failure steal your joy. It doesn't have to. Jesus took care of that because there's the joy of grace. The third thief that tries to steal us is simply the attacks of the world. Verse 33, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. You'll have struggle. You'll have tribulation. But take courage. Live courageously. I have conquered the world. And that's the word there. I have conquered the world. I've defeated it in a battle. It's a defeated foe. It has no power. When trials hit, we get overwhelmed and we get angry and we get frustrated. When the world attacks us and throws difficulty, we can't avoid pain, folks. We can't avoid trials. Everybody faces them. But when we get hit with them, when we go, wow, God isn't coming through for me. God must not be good. God is not loving. We lose our joy. But when we are attacked and we say, wait a minute, Jesus is in control and he is going to use this for good in my life so I can trust him. Why? Because he has conquered the world. The world has no power over us. Jesus controls what happens to us and he turns it for good. He births joy through the pain. He uses the pain and the struggle to hammer at our own uh, selfishness and our own sin that keeps us from experiencing joy and he breaks those chains through it. And when we keep that perspective, then we can say, Lord, thank you for the struggle. I don't like it. It hurts. But thank you. I can have joy even in the midst of it because I know you are in control and you are Lord. 
See, trials can't destroy us and can't destroy our joy if we remember Jesus is in control. He controls even the difficulties and trials we face. They're in his hands. He's the blessed controller, and he will use it for good. He will redeem even the pain for good in my life. So as Jesus is about to go to that cross, he's about to be arrested that very night, He commands the disciples, it will be hard, you will grieve, you will have pain, you will have trials in the world, but live courageously. Live with joy. Live with peace. Because you know I'm in control. Because you know I've risen. And all of this is in my hands. So Jesus reigns and therefore we can face anything with courage because he reigns. Does it hurt? Sure. Life hurts. But can there be a deep abiding joy that gets us through? Absolutely. And Jesus says, live with joy. Live with courage. Live with peace. I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are in control. Forgive us, Lord, for how we forget that constantly and we begin to look to circumstances for life instead of to your reigning hand. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us have eyes to see you at work, even when we don't understand, so that we could have joy in the midst of the difficulties. And we pray that you would use the struggles of our life to give birth to a deeper joy, that we could live like my friend Kay, who has joy, a deep joy, in the midst of pain. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.